Hello there, Ramblin' fans. It's Andy here. Just a quick note up top to say that we had some technical issues in this episode, and you can blame Josh Glenn and his microphone. Around half an hour or so into it, you can hear a crackle accompanying Josh when he is speaking that does unfortunately stay with him for the rest of the episode. It shouldn't be an issue in future episodes, and you can still very much hear what Josh is saying, so hopefully you don't find it too distracting for what is, we think, a very fun and silly episode. Please do keep listening to the end, as we also have something to share with you all, along with a special musical treat. I shall now hand it over to Kevin Costner to toast us into this episode on Kevin Reynolds' Fandango. Take it away, Kev. Ladies and gentlemen and groovers, welcome back to Ramblin', an Amblin' podcast. The podcast that hops behind the wheel of a busted Cadillac to cruise on down the highway of Amblin' entertainment. I am one half of your host, Andrew Godian. And I'm your other half, Joshua Glenn. Uh, We hope you're all doing well and enjoying the show as much as we have been over the last few episodes. Um, Our last few titles have covered some kind of the big Mm -hmm. early hitters for Amblin' entertainment with uh, Poltergeist, E.T. and Gremlins. And uh, for this episode, we're going back down to, into the more kind of low-key, underseen fare. The Continental the Divide timeline. territory. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Continental Divides, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm quite excited. Well, it's quite liberating mm. to be freed of some of the, the bigger ticket names. Um and we can be a bit sillier, maybe. We can with, be a bit uh, sillier. <laughs> with this. We, we both have a can of Guinness on the go. <laughs> yeah, it, feels like, so, um, it feels like the teacher's not in the classroom, so we can mess around a little bit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I've got a second one prepped by my feet, yeah. so, so if you hear a can going, don't worry, it's just me. <laughs> we at Ramblin', of course, encourage responsible drinking. Uh, yes, as difficult course. as that might be to maintain during these, uh, quote, strange and unprecedented times. Although people aren't really saying that anymore, are they? Because there is a precedent now, and no, that it, was the first the precedent. Yeah. <laughs> it's very true, it's very true. And like the, the, the film we're also covering this week just feels like there's there's some boozing and cruising mm-hmm, in this movie, mm-hmm. so it felt like a felt like a good one to have a, yeah. <laughs> a, a sweet tin with to for the discussion. We um, or, <laughs> no, go on. <laughs> but 
I was just gonna, I was just gonna say we're we're covering 1985's Kevin Reynolds' film Fandango. But what were you gonna say, Josh? Well, I was gonna say there was a point. It's a good thing you introduced the film because I was gonna talk about the film. There's a point in the film. <laughs> there's a, an important beer crate in the film, and there's a point where the the beer crate runs out. And Andy and I coordinated our viewing for this one, and we sort of texted our thoughts as we went along. And at that point, you texted me and said, "Oh no, they're out of beer." Then... <laughs> I, was, I was, I was so, sh- I was really quite uh, distraught for for the groupers at this juncture. Yeah, but there's a point shortly afterwards when they 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 procure some more booze, and you you were you know reassured by that. Your fears were assuaged. Yeah. <laughs> the film clearly heard me. <laughs> so it's going to be a fun one to talk about. This one, I think. Um... Yeah, yeah, because like you said at the top, this is another one of the of the House of Amblin that we I don't think either of us had ever heard of no, before going no. into into viewing it for this for this episode. Um, and it's also one that just did not get a particularly wide release in the 1980s. So um, I I'm, I've been chatting to a few friends around it and like even my parents and what have you and it, like just no one seems to really have had any kind of uh, knowledge of what this is. So I feel like this is quite a good one for your top of the episode synopsis to mm-hmm. gi- give everyone a good good feel for this one, like from making a bit of a difference from like I say the last mm-hmm. three weeks being quite quite po- big popular ones. Yeah, 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 yeah. Shall I, do you want me to go? Shall I go into it? Yeah, you go ahead, man. You okay, go ahead. Okay. 15th of May, 1971, University of Texas, Austin. Uh, we join a frat house uh, in which a group called, or self-styled, the Groovers is throwing a graduation party. Uh, the Groovers are made up of Gardner Barnes, played by Kevin Costner, Phil Hicks, played by Judd Nelson, Kenneth Wagner, played by Sam Robards, Dorman, played by Chuck Bush, and Lester Griffin, uh, often pretty much entirely unconscious in the film, played by Brian Cisak. Uh So we begin in this frat house with a party going on downstairs. Uh, meanwhile, upstairs in the bedroom, Gardner, who's kind of the de facto leader, it seems, of the Groovers by virtue of being young, hot thing Kevin Costner. He's moping over photos of him and his ex-girlfriend, Debbie, played by Susie Amos in her big screen debut. One of many big screen debuts, the other big one being Kevin Costner. Uh, Debbie, uh, being Kevin's, uh, sorry, Kevin is the actor, being Gardner's ex-girlfriend, is now engaged to be married. I'm definitely going to call him Kevin throughout the whole (laughs) thing, so don't worry too much about it. It's harder than you think to keep track of actors' names versus character names. Um, So Gardner and Debbie used to go out, whereas they broke up. Debbie's now engaged to be married to Kenneth, who is another member of the Groovers. Uh, Gardner rips up the photo and powers through to rejoin the party downstairs, which, to all intents and purposes, looks like an Andrew Lloyd Webber version of what a frat party looks like. (laughs) (laughs) Booze, booze, drugs, drugs. Um, Festivities. (laughs) Yeah, it's not not too long before we see our first um, line of of bare bottoms, is it? In this film, quite quite surprising. (laughs) Not much take up for that. Take off before that. Um, festivities are cut short when Kenneth arrives at the party and informs everyone that there will be no wedding as his student deferment has expired and he's been drafted to Vietnam. Uh, Gardner, who is not so secretly overjoyed at the wedding being called off, reveals that he's also been drafted and sketches a plan with the rest of the Groovers to go on one last road trip to see out the last days of their freedom. Their destination? Rio Grande. Gr- Grande? Grande? 
My, I, have, I always say Rio Grande. I have so, <laughs> or the Rio Grande. <laughs> when I went to, I'm growing up in Rotherham, I went to university uh, at Warwick with yourself, and I found out so many of my pronunciations were incorrect. Not just in a sort of north-south way, but in a the Glenn family mispronounced words even for northern people kind of way. So I have very little confidence <laughs> in my pronunciations of certain words. Their destination, their destination is Rio Grande, where they plan to dig up something or someone no, something named Dom. Along the way, their car runs out of gas. They attempt to be towed by a passing train. They engage in some light American graffiti-esque flirting with some potentially underage girls. Uh, they camp at the set of James Dean's Giant. Uh, they prove their manly chops by skydiving, and they reflect on their encroaching responsibilities and how equipped, or even willing they are, to face them. Oh, I like that. You wrote that nicely. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I know I'm a bit older than these guys are, but I still am facing a similar predicament of encouraging yeah. responsibilities and, like, and my unwillingness to face them. And it's very much one of those movies where the characters may be like 21, 22, but mm. everyone playing them is very much 30. Yeah. <laughs> it's very much in the Greece tradition of, uh, yeah. of, team, of team casting. And, um... <laughs> This is a lot, as you kind of alluded to in your in your lovely synopsis there, that this is a lot of firsts for mm. a lot of the people involved here, um, from Kevin Costner to Susie Amos and to for the writer director of the film Kevin Reynolds. And usually with like these episodes so far, we've kind of been going over the kind of career paths that these guys have had ahead of being uh, appointed by Spielberg to go make a movie, and this is very much the first time that we've come across someone who's literally got nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Which makes that prep work a lot easier. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Um, But as for Kevin Reynolds in general, um, I know you were saying to me in prep for this, that this is the only Kevin Reynolds film that you've now seen. Yeah. 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 Kevin, Kevin Costner being uh, a, a, regular collaborator with Reynolds is a big blank spot in my viewing and um, yeah the, the, the big ticket Kevin Reynolds films just completely passed me by somehow mm-hmm like Kevin Reynolds you say is most famous for um, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves another Costner collaboration Waterworld <laughs> the big folly collaboration with Costner which uh, did kind of affect their relationship <laughs> for a yeah. little while and they didn't work, work for each work with each other again until Hatfields and McCoy McCoy's a TV miniseries in uh, 2012 but um, this for the origins for Fandango for Reynolds I think it's quite interesting in how this kind of uh, mirrors a lot of Spielberg's own uh, discovery and start in the business Mm. because with this being his first film credit the only kind of proof of his talent was from a short film that Spielberg had had seen that Reynolds had made as his final thesis film at USC in 1980, which is a film called Proof. Um, <laughs> and as we know from our prologue episode, that Spielberg very much got his contract at Universal for to work on a lot of TV production off the strength of his own short student film, Amblin. So that I like that there's a kind of mirroring here in mm. kind of Spielberg's own uh, uh, decision to kind of 
as a producer to look out for yeah. uh, up and coming filmmakers in like quite literally at their point of origin as well and trying to recognize the potential in what they've produced at a student level mm. and allowing them the space to because we talked a bit about it in the last episode in terms of like picking the likes of Joe Dante and Toby uh Toby who to make a movie based off simply liking the stuff that they had made before yeah like leveraging his industry capital by this point to give them a, a bigger platform to to make something more exciting and maybe more fully realize their potential mm-hmm and uh this short film that if you are interested proof um that Reynolds made in 1980 is in available in free parts on YouTube like uh, and we we watched it ahead of before going into our viewing of fandango and uh proof is uh follows a group of friends to not dissimilar to the Groovers themselves. Do they call? I can't remember if they call themselves. The I don't Groovers think. In, in I don't the think short. they call themselves the Groovers. I don't know. I don't know if they have I don't that think moniker. They do no. No, the, the 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 dynamic and the context is a bit different as well. Yeah. In the um, are, are they? I guess they're students. They're young enough to be students. I guess yeah, they literally were students. students. Yeah. Uh, the 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 real life people will have been students too. And one one of them's wearing a USC t shirt as well, if I remember correctly. Makes sense. But um, so one of, one of the main sequences in the feature film Fandango itself is this uh, skydive sequence that Josh mentioned in uh, up at top, and um, proof is literally that sequence um, that follows like this group of friends who take their kind of uh, bookish nerdish friend to a uh, kind of cheapest chips skydive school to <laughs> test his metal. As it were, and this like it's literally a skydiving school that's hung together by duct tape, and under the guise of uh, writing an article for a, a like adventure magazine, they managed to wrangle a free free skydive lesson for the for their for their pal, and uh, much hilarity ensues in both the preparation <laughs> and the actual jump itself. <laughs> But it's good though, isn't it? And it's, it's it's good. It, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's a really lively, really spirited kind of yeah dynamically shot live action cartoon for the most part. And like it's really impressive to also look at it as a student film and like see how he managed to uh, Reynolds managed to kind of wrangle a really exciting aerial sequence. Yeah, it's really absolutely. Fun. <laughs> it's, it's genuinely a thrilling climax. This film has this twenty four minute film. Um, builds to this very very exciting and unpredictable climax, and it's got it's got quite an elegant structure to it in terms of the the way it yeah. plays with your excitement and your expectations. Um, and and it does a, it's got a, a quite a strong visual uh, sense of humour, I think, as well, which he uh, replicates in the film. I, I I think it's much more potent in this concentrated twenty four minute patch uh, in proof. I agree. I really agree, and it's like it's really not hard to see why someone like Spielberg would have looked at proof and kind of gone, "Yeah, I can see like there's the genuine sense of character here. Yeah. And there's a real kind of personality to particularly how these characters are being written and developed and performed. And, the, the, um, the, the, the performances are, are yeah. decent for a you know for a student film. They, they don't they, they feel they're quite broad and quite cartoonish, which I think helps. Oftentimes with student films, you do have that kind of very stilted, very studied, uh, overly clipped style of performance. 
uh, which I don't think is the case in this one. No, I don't think it is at all. And I I think that is why you can understand why Spielberg would be so into backing this guy to develop a feature based around yeah. what was produced in this short movie. Uh, I, I think then, and, and like I say, I'm right in thinking, I think I'm right in thinking this is the first time he picks um, a writer, director for a project to develop both as a script and to direct it as well because yeah. I'm pretty sure I'm right in thinking all, all, all that we've had before are films that were either Spielberg had already bought the script or was mm-hmm. already developing the script and then picked a director to come onto it. So I think I'm right in thinking this is the first time that he's picking someone to literally just go off and do it and do it themselves and yeah. develop their yeah. own ideas. That's very cool. cool. Yeah, <laughs> in the, the guy as opposed to the idea, like was the case with the previous, all of the previous entries. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we can discuss either now or after our main discussion how successful that was, I suppose. But um... mm, yeah, we'll build into that. We'll build, I've got because <laughs> as so as like Reynolds is building the feature of uh, Proof Itself, which is now formed into Fandango and he adds these ele- this larger narrative element of it being a one last ride for these guys into it and he builds his cast up of the kind of like, might we say fresh and hot faces of the 80s, because um, also along the cast with, like, with Costner and Amos you've got Judd Nelson coming in to play what is the kind of like replacement for the uh, ner- nerdy character in the short um, and I think it's quite interesting because this is coming out in the same year that Judd Nelson would have been playing Bender in The Breakfast Club which is like the quintessential kind of 80s bad boy so it's weird it's quite fun to see that there's this complete opposite role going for him at the exactly and this the is same just time. Before, this, this was filmed in I think 83 did, it be, did the production begin I think for this one so it yeah, because this was released yeah, in like yeah. January so this, this came out, um, so it would have been in the January of '85, and Breakfast Club was June of '85. Uh, so yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting contrast in Judd Nelson's performances of that year. Yeah, and you and like even going into deeper into the cast was like Sam uh, Robards playing uh, Ken. He would go on to pop up in quite a few um, prominent things. He's in Brian De Palma's Casualties of War. And he works at Spielberg himself later on down the line. He's in AI. Um, I'm pretty sure he's in American Beauty as well. Yeah. So he, yeah. he gets some good, uh, <laughs> some good notches there <laughs> later down the line. And like you say, this is the first performance from Susie Amos as well, who was, I'm pretty sure, more famous for being a model at this time. Listeners might best know her for playing Rose's granddaughter in Titanic. Um, uh, we should also say she... That kind of there was a mirroring and narrative to Fandango in which Susie Amos and uh, Sam Robards actually did get married not long after this, I believe, and then um, quite famously there was a an affair between Amos and James Cameron on the set of Titanic, which uh, led <laughs> led, to, led to a happy ending, I guess, in a way that and they're, they're now still both together. Happily did you married, say, Amos but, um, and Cameron? They're still together. They're still together. Yeah. 
this is <laughs> this is Ramblin' and Amblin' podcast, giving you the hottest uh, celebrity gossip from <laughs> 1997. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it would be fair to say that um, the most significant factor for Fandango in a kind of like a larger cultural standpoint is that this is the first time Kevin Reynolds does work with Kevin Costner and this is Kevin Costner's first leading role he had already shot a movie The Gunrunner also in 83 but that for whatever reason did not get a release until 1989 so r- right after like I guess Costner was starting to become a bit of a thing I said, yeah, just 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 before he uh, he won Best Picture and everything else um, for Dancers with yeah. Wolves. Was, or was that was that the nineteen ninety one? Yeah, Oscars. Because <laughs> yeah, because it, it's yeah, because the Oscars are always for the year before. But yeah, but I, you know, either way, it's right when he was yeah. starting to to crest. And it, like, do you know much about the Gunrunner? No, no, I don't. I don't. Do you? Have, do you yourself? No, I. It's not one I've. I seen, don't know. But I'm trying to think. No. Before this, I think the probably the earliest Costner thing I'd seen would be The Untouchables. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, I think me too. All I know is that William Thomas of Empire Magazine gave the film two stars out of five. Um, the Gunrunner, or <laughs> the Gunrunner, the Gunrunner. This is yeah, not not The Untouchables. <laughs> you back off from Untouchables, man. <laughs> I know you didn't give it two out of five, but you back off. <laughs> Yeah, when was Untouch- Untouchables was 87, so yeah, this would have been a couple of years before. And yeah, so it, I always do quite like seeing base points of origin for big movie stars. And this this feels like a quite a weird role for Costner. It doesn't, to me, for me anyway, who's more familiar with Costner for the likes of kind of playing a bit more straight-laced in something like The Untouchables or The Bodyguard or JFK... It's weird seeing him kind of play this kind of like carefree hustler kind of character. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I, Kevin Costner is a guy. I've seen The Untouchables. I've seen um, Hidden Figures. But oh, I think yeah. beyond that, yeah, because he he, he plays kind of the yeah he plays the the, the decent ish, the the, the 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 sort of least square guy in that. To a point, but he's he's always been a guy who I haven't known an awful lot about. I'm not seeing him much on screen, but I've had this image in my head, this uh, ir- irrational, unfair image of of just disliking him. I don't quite know what I think. Maybe oh, I it's his star persona. No, I know. <laughs> I, I think he's very charming, and I like the Untouchables plenty. I like Hidden Figures plenty as well. Um, and I think he, he he was you know charming enough in this. I just don't I don't know why the, the image that preceded him in my mind was one that I found a bit yeah a bit square and a bit unappealing mm. um but i think maybe i know <laughs> my mum is not someone who will often hate on movies but for some reason her least favorite film of all time is the bodyguard <laughs> so maybe <laughs> in a weird in a weird flip to that it's one of my mum's favorite films of all time oh, really? <laughs> my mum is a massive whitney houston fan so i think that's probably what the <laughs> where that <Yeah>. more lies <laughs> yeah i don't know um so may- maybe it was passed down maybe uh my mum's dislike of that film made me in- instinctively dislike Kevin Costner but no he, he is a charming guy and I think in this film my, the first note that I made was in this film was he's kind of channeling Tom Cruise in Risky Business kind of energy that kind of plucky mm. cocksure um, at least ostensibly youthful figure yeah yeah definitely I think that there's a, a bit more confidence to him than the likes of Cruise in Risky Business because Cruise is still very much that kid who's 
kind of wide-eyed and panicked for a lot of that movie. Yeah. <laughs> Until yeah. he suddenly, like, <laughs> looks like the University of Illinois. <laughs> That's exactly the freeze frame that I was thinking of. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Shit-eating grin. <laughs> and I think it's quite an interesting, looking in, into some of the trivia around this, that Costner himself also auditioned for the uh, lead character, the same character in the Proof, short film that Reynolds made when he was a student and didn't get it. Yeah, yeah no. That's funny. So how, old, how old will Kevin Costner have been um, around this time then? So, so talking... he, he was 30 when the film was released, so he would have been his late 20s when it, they shot Holy it. Holy cow. Yeah, so he, so he auditioned when he was 25 for the role. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for, for proof, that is. Yeah. So I wonder if, was he just a jobbing LA actor at that point? Then? Was he just looking for work and he yeah, but looking at some of looking at some of his early roles, he's he's got a few credits before um, Fandango, but nothing. Yeah. Um, nothing quite to the same level because, for one, some of the credits include in Night Shift, a film by Ron Howard, he played Frat Boy Number One, and <laughs> <laughs> he played <laughs> he played newlywed husband in Table for Five. <laughs> So he's got yeah. some name characters beforehand. I just don't think they were particularly very big. Roles. No. This is his first lead role mm. to come out, as it were. He yeah. followed it up with Silverado and American Flyers in the same year, so he had a good 85. <laughs> oh, but so there's, yeah, and then nothing in 86, and then the Untouchables in 87. There's not. It feels like quite a chasm in terms of. Um, the perception of Kevin Costner between Fandango and the Untouchables. Maybe that's with retrospect and with my limited knowledge looking at him, but the character he plays in this just feels year, light years away from uh, Elliot Ness in the Untouchables. Yeah, yeah, it really does. I know, really does. I know. It's, it, the context is everything. He plays a student here, and he plays like a. Is he a rookie FBI agent in that, or, or is he someone who's he's just been transferred or something like that? He's out of his depth. Yeah, no, yeah, he's just been kind of. Place in yeah. Of, oh, that's right. Yes. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, trying to get man. That's a good movie, isn't it? The Untouchables. Trying to get Capone. <laughs> I, I love the Untouchables. <laughs> um, anyway, we're talking about uh, uh, Fernando. But yeah, it is. <laughs> um, I suppose he he just he silver. I mean, Silverado and uh, and and American Flyers. Did they? They must have done a lot for him. I, I haven't seen either of those. Have you? Yeah, Silverado. He, he's very good in Silverado. Yeah, Silverado is a very very strong Lawrence Kasdan again so there's here we go boy Larry to, yeah there's always always the tie-in with someone from Ramblin even in is, is, there, is, um, <laughs> is there a scene in Silverado where the female lead asks Kevin Costner where it hurts and he points and says here and she kisses it and then he says here and she kisses it <laughs> that's a reference to a continental divide not to, episode not to my memory <laughs> <laughs> But that, that's a decent western. That it's got it's got some fun performances in it. There's a very good uh, Kevin Klein's lead in that. But yeah, like it's a it's a good movie, damn good movie. Kevin Kevin Klein, a man who is no stranger to the western genre, <laughs> with that and Wild Wild West. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find a way to bring Wild Wild West back into. It. I'm a I'm a, I'm a shill for Wild Wild West. I'm a a, a, a late career Sonnenfeld shill. <laughs> man, the um. Uh, oh god long i'd love to do an episode on what somehow figure out a way to justify doing a whole episode on wild wild west well we will 
eventually be addressing Sonnenfeld films, so you can worm it way, worm your way in there. Steer the conversation towards Wild Wild West. No, I'm I'm not going to disservice Men in Black like that. Mm -hmm. Bloody love Men in Black. Anyway, I'm I'm all over the place today, Andrew. (laughs) Uh, Let's get this baby back. Let's get this baby back. Let's let's lasso this baby to a moving train and get it get it moving. There we go. Um, so the next point I was going to kind of go into before um, diving into our thoughts on the movie itself is the kind of muted release that the film ended up having yeah. back in 85. Because um, while Spielberg was the main man behind um, picking Reynolds from the strength of this short film to make a film based around the, the short film he had made, um, Spielberg himself was not very happy with the finished project and um, as a result removed his name from the executive producer credits um, and what, while the film was still released under the Amblin Entertainment banner of course it was because otherwise we would not be talking about it, um, it it only had Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall credited as the exec producers and Spielberg's name was nowhere to be seen and as a result I, I guess as a result of this kind of um, lack of um, faith in it, the film got a very small release in the U, particularly in the US. Uh, I don't think it got a very wide international release at all. Um, where, which, of course, hampered its box office potential because it ended up only earning just over ninety-one thousand dollars in its run, which is Jesus. tiny, tiny, tiny pocket tiny, money, tiny. That, isn't it? Jesus, and for a film that like did not cost a lot to make either. Yeah, I think it only cost like a million or a million or two to make. And uh, even at the time when asked to comment on Spielberg's hesitance to release the film, uh, Reynolds' agent at the time simply responded, "He's tired of talking about Spielberg, <laughs> and he's busy." <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I added so much sass to that Hollywood agent. Don't quote go there. there. Like and yeah. he's busy. Yeah, exactly. It must be. It must be irritating and for Reynolds busy. to be continually. I mean, I wonder how continuous the questioning was because he, he he didn't take too long to make his next film. Yeah, he because he went on to make a movie about um, the war in Afghanistan with the Russians uh, a few years after this. Um, which I, I think is called either The Beast or The Beast of War. Let me get it up quick. The Beast. The Beast. And I, and even before that, he made he did direct an episode of Amazing Stories, which is a TV series that Spielberg produced. So there, there clearly couldn't have been too many hard <laughs> hard feelings between the two. But um, yeah. No, no. I mean, maybe maybe Spielberg. Um... Obviously, he, he's he's a canny businessman, so he's got his brand image to protect. Maybe he just felt he'd given Kevin Reynolds too much runway before his time, and uh, you know, as well as wanting to protect the brand, he also wanted to to not cut off Reynolds' opportunities, so funneled him elsewhere, um, whilst also taking his name off his debut film. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I've also just clocked 
I don't quite know how I didn't clock this beforehand, but Cameron Reynolds also has a screenwriting credit on John Milius's Red Dawn, <laughs> which is Red the second Dawn. time Red Dawn the has first... come up in this. Yeah, <laughs> in consecutive weeks, yeah. first movie to be released with a PG thirteen rating. Boom. As we discussed last week. <laughs> but like going back to like the film's muted release, it like even the reviews at the time kind of were a little, little lukewarm to it. Um. Janet Maslin at New York Times at the time did say that Reynolds had a clear kind of hold for sight gags and off the wall humor and make made it at least made it a notable debut and he brought a good deal of feeling. Uh, Leonard Moulton called it a really fresh and likable film, if uneven. But in regards to like kind of the general perception of it at the time, I guess largely due to the fact that it just did not get a very wide release. It wasn't really discussed but it's it's has gone on to have a bit more of a uh a, a life as a cult cult favorite um with like a group of fans even going as far as a uh, uh doing a massive tour of all the shooting locations for the film's 25th anniversary and um I, I, I don't know if you've got the quote up yourself. Um, yeah, but, uh, I have. <laughs> <laughs> it's also a, a very... Uh, it's a firm favourite of a certain Quentin Tarantino as well. What what, mm-hmm. what did Tarantino have to say about uh, Fandango? Well, um, when speaking to Empire Magazine in, in 2011, he said, Fandango is one of the best directorial debuts in the history of cinema. Right? I saw Fandango five times at the movie theatre, right? and it only played for a fucking week. Uh, for a quote that had all right in it already uh, all at once you still peppered it with a lot of all right <laughs> <laughs> i feel like that's um, your favorite thing to say in a tarantino impression just get all right <laughs> yeah because it's, it's like it's like it's like breathing or it's like saying um you know when you need to fill the space yeah. while you think yeah let me say what like a virgin's about all right it's a metaphor uh all right for 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 for, for, for big dicks uh, right. <laughs> uh, is that offensive? I don't know if it's offensive or not. I'm sure Tarantino I can will, never, <laughs> will never hear it. <laughs> you never know. He's we have got some listeners in California. Right? It might be one of them. <laughs> <laughs> hey, get my get my lawyer on the phone. Right? Uh, I'm shutting your butt down. <laughs> not, not your monkey. I'm not, not going to dance for you. Um, <laughs> he's a fun one to do. He's a fun. Uh, he's a fun person to impersonate. <laughs> do you have a Tarantino impression? Uh, not one I've ever knowingly practiced. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll let you carry that one. Thank you. All right. <laughs> for, the, uh, for, the, for, the, for the listener, during our prep, Andy did text me and say, uh, "Tarantino is is a champion of this film," and you shared the quote to me. And I thought this. There's no way this is. This is such a, a stereotypical uh, Tarantino thing to say. I cannot believe this is legitimate. But it has since been verified. The fact that it like because like I know you you do hear him say all right a lot in the as as you like you say the kind of like the fill in the gap. But the fact that it was just kind of there in the quote when I saw it, it was like all right. Joshua like any this. excuse to try out this uh, this this laboured hackneyed impression. <laughs> 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 All right, um, yeah. 
<laughs> so, so it's fair to say that Fandango has its fans. <laughs> and um, I feel like that's quite quite a good point to kind of dig into why we think this cult following might have been birthed on evidence of the actual film itself. So uh, what what your kind of first impressions kind of going in and coming out at the other end of I... Fandango? When, when approaching a film with next to no reputation like this, much with Continental Divide a few week, few episodes ago, my instinct is always to try and... I, I want to find a gem. I want to find a film that is an, under, like an overlooked um, classic, and I, I do want to feel the, the need to champion it. And this does, like, reading the synopsis and you know the pedigree of, of those involved at the time, it, it looked promising, and I was very much hoping that I'd watch it and it'd be like kind of transitory coming of age, one last ride dramedy. That, that's all stuff that I'm, I'm very much into. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I think you liked it a bit more than me. I, I wasn't too taken with it. Uh, I, I, I don't want to. I, I, I'm conscious of, of trying to avoid, you know, dumping on stuff in this podcast. This, this is a, this is a positive, constructive podcast. But I, I don't quite. It didn't work for me particularly in the way that I hoped it would. Um, but I suppose I suppose I can mm-hmm. see what has stuck for people. I mean that that it do, it has yeah. that it does have that energy. It has that. I think it's much more potent in in, in proof. I think the twenty four minute short film that formed the basis for this has a much more concentrated dose of what Kevin Reynolds at this stage in his career is good at, which is a kind of cartoon energy, that, that visual sense of humour and that, that manic charge. Um, I think over the course of the runtime, it it's kind of diluted a little bit by some strange dramatic beats and some weird dead-end um, uh, digressions and, and stuff like that. But I can, you know, I, I, I can see why one might chime with this, because the, the, the ideas it taps into, the, the idea, like we discussed at, you know, at the top of the episode, of maturity on the horizon and, and responsibility as an adulthood kind of kind of calling, I mean, we're in our late 20s now, that feeling has plagued me pretty much since I left university, if not, you know, since I left um, sixth form before that. So it, it is, it's a very potent feeling, and it is something that I think everyone feels and and may, may, maybe everyone carries that feeling with them throughout their lives and maybe the, the feeling of not being ready for what's on your doorstep is something that will always be there so i can see how that sort of the the the, the cornerstone of this movie the the underlying theme and the sentiment can resonate with people because it is nice when you feel like that it's nice to see that replicated and it's nice to feel like you're not alone in feeling that do you know what i mean so even though for me personally, it didn't realise that idea in a way that I found dramatically satisfying. I think that notion maybe is what chimes with people so much. And uh, um, but yeah, I mean, you 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 vibe with it in a stronger way, didn't you? Yeah, and like, I wouldn't really disagree with anything that you say. I think it's quite an un- uneven movie. I think it's quite um, suitably for a road movie. I think it's got like quite a bumpy trajectory as it goes about. It's kind of business of doing both quite like a carefree uh piss in the winds last ride movie um about these group of young lads trying to enjoy their last kind of moments of consequence free sense of abandon whilst also having to address notions of this looming adulthood around them it's both 
thematically engaging for that matter and also not as kind of well measured in its depictions of these of these kind of like big moments where they very much kind of put their heart more on their sleeve and directly address these these themes in a way that often is far too on the nose for its own good (laughs) (laughs) but that being said that makes that kind of like on the nose sentimentality mixed in with these kind of like weird archaic cartoonish beats to it really make it quite like a um, distinct brew that I did quite enjoy sipping down. <laughs> <laughs> Beautifully put. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That even comes from like the from the very top of it because like I I was instantly charmed by this kind of like very first movie move of opening with a dictionary definition of the word fandango. (laughs) (laughs) So like (laughs) the film opens with like the definition being fandango one, a lively dance and rhythm varying from slow to quick three, four time Two, music for this three, a foolish act. And I like that works as both kind of like a quite a fun, silly gag for that like third definition coming in but it just instantly put me in a place of like being at university and I remember one of the first um uh, essays I wrote at university I opened <laughs> opened it with a dictionary definition of um what turning point meant <laughs> <laughs> and I remember the comment on my like thank god it was Thursday at uni where you can do stupid shit like this and it not really matter <laughs> and they'll let you know but like the first comment was like this might have flown in sixth form but it won't fly here <laughs> 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 the film instantly put me in that place of I was just kind of like, all right, yeah, all right. <laughs> I I see your sweet naivete. <laughs> it was endearing to me from that like kind of offhanded yeah title card at the start. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I I get that, and um, I yeah. I suppose it's one of those things that either endears itself to you or immediately sort of puts your back up. Because that I I, I found, you know, reasonably charming. But as soon as we get dumped in the fret, dropped in the fret house scenario and you've got Kevin Costner looking at photos of his wall and doing some exposition friendly talking to himself and symbolically tearing the the photo up and rejoining his party downstairs, which, as I mentioned, it feels kind of like a musical theatre kid's idea of what a raucous frat party looks like there there was kind of there was a sense of affectation and an overly mannered uh element to the the performances and to the way that they were framed that i the kind of there's kind of an implicit um sort of cringing on my part when i see when i see stuff like that and i struggle to get past that Mm. um yeah, I agree. Like, like particularly the because a lot of these sort of films will ride or die on the um, combination of characters and the chemistry w- within those actors playing those characters, and that is probably an element of this film that doesn't fully work. Um, if only because um, one kind of like looking at the short film proof and then going into this, they feel like. 
um, slightly. They, they they are more expanded versions of these char more caricature elements that you see in proof, but I know there's like they're not entirely convincing as buddies who have like really gotten to know each other and love each other over the course of these four years, unless when the film is telling you that this is the case. And yeah, they do, uh, and it's there's a weird kind of like slight standoffish approach to that. Um, where it doesn't really kind of work as a buddy movie as such, particularly as you kind of see the fact that there is clearly a lot of unspoken um, details between them, which would be ultimately quite damaging because it is revealed at the end that the same person that Kevin has been lamenting over is the, and as you said at the top, uh, is the same person who's marrying Ken. And it, I got the impression that Ken has absolutely no idea that um, his mate Kevin Costner Gardner was ever involved with his bride to be, and that feels like a, it's a, there's this weird kind of pull and tension between these chaps who are like one quite at, in moments when the film needs them to be a quite emotionally open with each other, but also very clearly. Um, quite closed off and then it also goes for these like quite cartoonish um stereotypes within some of them because as we said there is that there's one one of the groovers who literally spends the whole film in the back of the car passed out from <laughs> drinking too much at the frat he's, he, beginning, which he's I a prop i yeah. do love that I, detail. I, 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 I enjoy the, the, the visual side of that yeah it, it's, that's pretty funny and I also, I did also really enjoy um, the character of Dorman, who is, uh, Dorman, who is this, uh, he's the kind of big, strong, uh, silent type that, like, just often hangs out. And he, he only, he, like, he intervenes if it, people are ever getting, like, kind of a bit too fiery, or, like, if something's being overlooked, he'll, like, if a fight breaks out in the car, he's the first one who's there to make sure that he's got a hand on the wheel and can take over the driving and also he's i i do love the like little character affectation that he has where he's just like sat in the car and or like sat out in the desert and he's either reading like a copy of <laughs> sartre sartre's being a nothingness or the incredible Hulk. Now, i was gonna ask you that i missed the detail of what the novel the, 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 the book was that he was reading before the hulk um the fact that it's sartre that's, i quite and i enjoy that um i should fess up as well um during the opening uh, gambit of this movie when uh, Ken comes back and says, uh, I've been drafted, I'm not getting married, blah, blah, blah. A lot of that stuff kind of, that escalated quite fast. And, and I thought, I, I, I felt like I'd missed a beat that kind of explained why uh, Kevin Costner's character reacted like he did. So I opened up Wikipedia and looked up the plot synopsis to see what I'd, sort of to see what I'd missed in terms of character motivation. And on Wikipedia, it said that, um, that Kenneth was now marrying uh, Kevin Costner's character's ex-girlfriend Debbie. So I I didn't realize that when you meet Debbie at the end of the film at the wedding, that's a reveal. I thought we knew by that point that they were pining after the same girl. So maybe that is maybe right. maybe that would have been more <laughs> maybe that would have been more effective. I didn't I didn't watch the movie right. I I, I, <laughs> I, I thought I missed something at the start. So try to recap based on Wikipedia synopsis. And Wikipedia dropped a clanger in its opening paragraph, uh, 
spoiling a reveal at the end. So maybe I would have enjoyed it more. Maybe I would have appreciated what he was doing more if that mystery was maintained and if I got the sense there was something that wasn't spoken. I, I thought that Kenneth knew that Gardner used to date mm. Debbie and was just being a bit weird. That explains an awful lot of confusing character behavior now. Like at the end when... Um, at the end when... So they, they yeah. go on this, this soul-searching road trip trying to sort of flee from their responsibilities while they still can. And they kind of realize that, oh no, we are going to have to face up to these. We can't run away from these you know, forever. Everyone figures this out apart from Kevin Costner's character. Um, so they, they stage a dramatic last-minute wedding. Interesting you say that. Carry on, though. Okay, well, but, I guess we can, we yeah. can we'll put a pin in that for the time being. Um, yeah, because um, I, I kind of disagree with your assessment it, of Kevin Costner's character there. Okay, well, because the, I guess the final shot is ambiguous intentionally so. I read it in one way, and it sounds like you read mm. it in But the um, uh, this, this soul-searching desert road trip uh, reaches a point where they realise they have to you know face their responsibilities, so... Kenneth does marry Debbie. Um, and there's a, a moment after they've staged this exciting um, last-minute wedding, uh, uh, Kenneth asks his best man, who is Gardner, Kevin Costner's character, to dance with Debbie. And watching it, I thought, oh, man, it's kind of it's kind of weird that this guy's asking, uh, you know, his, his new wife to, to dance with his, his best man knowing they used to go out. This is not fair on either of them. I mean, it kind of weird of you in the first place, Kenneth, to go out with Debbie knowing that she used to date Gardner. I didn't realise that we weren't... That, that, that we were to infer that Kenneth didn't know that. Yeah. So I feel like through my... Um, through my reading of the Wikipedia synopsis, Wikipedia ruined this film for me, so maybe I would have liked it more <laughs> had I not done that. Um, that is quite interesting in terms of like that sort of relationship that one can have with like having the ease of just looking up the movie on their phone if they're just watching it at home it is it is an interesting point I know, I, 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 I just, I, I, it was it's such a weird it, it's such a weird procession of events at the start before the road trip it, it feels kind of so fast and so rushed i was sure that i'd missed something or something that kind of passed me by mm-hmm. um so yeah i mean I, I will sometimes do that do you ever do that or do you just are you more attentive of you than I am? <laughs> I try not to. I, I try not. Pati- yeah. Particularly if it's something I'm watching for the yeah. first time, I'll very much like, yes, I, I had a notebook open for these purposes to write down, but I won't look up anything about said movie. I, mean, I won't anymore. Whilst I'm actually watching it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fool me once. <laughs> there, there, there's, there's an old shame uh, where I come from. Fool me once. I mean, that's a George W. Bush impression. What is this? 2004. No, come on. Okay, next. Next. Um, <laughs> let's, let's move on. Back to the Kevin Costner. But as yeah. I said, whilst you were. Yeah, because like you were saying, you kind of like saw, saw his character as being the only one who wasn't like ready to address. I. I personally kind of read it as he's the only one who realizes what the moment that they're in right now is he's the only one that knows that this is the last this is the last time we can be like we were we have been for the last four years please just all get on the same page as me and enjoy yourselves (laughs) for me that felt like what he was really calling out for throughout this whole thing he's like just please get on the same page as me for this last like three days (laughs) where we can as i think he i think he says it as um relive the groover's greatest moments and this is what this moment is for him 
and I like I can totally relate to that because I remember like going off on like particularly in that last year at uni when you kind of all done exams and you're waiting in that lull for graduation to occur we did a lot of really like random just sense of abandoned adventures to for the sake to just oh, be like yeah. oh we can do this now so we probably like, won't be able to for buying a morrison's and filling it with hot water from the shower and then the, the, the backyard of our house and, and sitting in there and drinking becks that were being sold at the spa for like eight pound a crate that was that was a fun time no i like uh, I, I, spa lincoln <laughs> spa <laughs> i do i like that reading i think um because the i kind of read the the, the vietnam stuff I suppose you can read that in a literal sense and also in a metaphorical sense. Vietnam kind of is, is the literal spectre of being grafted, but it's also the spectre of responsibility and, you know, adulthood and, and all that stuff on the horizon. And throughout the film, both uh, Gardner and Kenneth have been drafted. Um, and uh, what's his face? And Judd Nelson Phillips. Yeah, that's Judd yeah. Nelson's Philip. Yeah. Judd Nelson's character, Philip, he's also, I mean, has he been drafted or is is, is he. I think he's he already voluntary yeah, because there's, there's a whole because his parents uh his dad's in the military right, yeah. I think is what's suggested because there is a conversation about duty I mean you get the sense that Phil Hicks really feels his, his sort of quote unquote patriotic duty and he that's a source of a lot of tension between him and Gardner and Kenneth in that he's on one side and those two other guys having been drafted they don't quite feel the same sense of duty and yeah. um. Throughout the film, there they're weighing up whether or not to follow through on their draft or to, you know, to to, to dodge the draft. Um, and ultimately, Kenneth he decides to face everything head on. He's going to both marry Debbie and also face the music and go to Vietnam. Whereas Gardner decides he's going to dodge the draft. And I don't know. Mm-hmm. Is it implied that he's going to go to Mexico after this whole thing is over? With I very much feel like he's like, yeah, I'm gone. Yeah. I'm done. So that, I mean, reading the film as a metaphor for responsibility, you know, biting at your ankles, I saw this as, you know, you know how um, it reminded me a little bit of uh, the, the World's End, the, the third in the Cornetto trilogy, Edgar Wright, how, no, yeah, I can, I how can ultimately that, yeah. Simon Pegg's character, uh, his resolution is that he's kind of going to continue replicating these um he, he by the end of it he he continues to live in in, in the past in a way in a, in a kind of in a more sober and slightly more healthy fashion but he's still kind of living out these past uh routines and kind of avoiding he kind of refuses to 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 quote unquote grow up and you know join the rat race like his like his compadres do i kind of read kevin costner's decision to to dodge the draft in this metaphorical sense as him doing a similar thing you know, kind of making the choice yeah. to never, you know, uh, enter adulthood to, to prolong his adolescence. Yeah, I would, I would slightly. My only argument to that is like, um, mm. it's Vietnam. Oh I no, really? If I was, if I was alive during if i was alive on american during the time i would completely have dodged the draft not you know because i don't it was a you know let's not relitigate vietnam it's a ludicrous war that should never have taken place and i would not have wanted to you know take part in that kind of um uh, uh, uh 
I, I, this is I didn't mean to wade into this minefield. No, I am absolutely. I am not. Um, <laughs> I'm not on Judd Nelson's side. I th- I'm. I'm a. a no, I was going to say no, you're not I, judging Kevin Costner's character for do- I'm dodging pains, the draft because yeah. of it, no. I, I'm at pains to point out that I it's I read the Vietnam more of a symbol. metaphorical more than a practical in a metaphorical sense. I thought he was just trying to flee his responsibilities, which is what I do on a day to day basis. Uh, in, in, in a literal mm. in a literal sense, I, I am a pacifist. <laughs> I don't believe in war. I would completely have been a conscientious objector in the seventies. So, you know, don't get that twisted. You know, I, I'm not judging anyone who dodges a draft apart from uh, the seventy the the seventy fifth president of the United States of America. But that's a forty fifth forty fifth president. Question yeah, of the on. draft though is uh, the yeah. question of the draft is quite like. An interesting case for bringing in the kind of what is ends up being the centerpiece of the mm-hmm. film and what is its point of inspiration is the recreation of the whole short film proof in the skydive skydive sequence because like a lot of why I feel particularly this stretch it, like we said earlier mm-hmm. is literally shot for shot and word for word and for me the sequence doesn't really work anymore in the context of the film because of how much of the kind of contextual information that you're bringing into it from the film that you're watching affects the uh, makeup and dynamic of the characters because in the short film you have the uh phil who is still called phil in the short that who judd nelson's playing in the in fandango is he's framed as this more kind of like sympathetic um Put, put upon nerd figure who just wants to have a demonstration of that he's not this uh, weenie character he's got he's got a bit more he's got a bit more uh, fitness to his spine and he can, he can do courageous things in the context of Fandango this point where they're coming up to where they end up pushing Judd Nelson's character to do the same thing um, they kind of tr- try to frame it as a, a similar kind of means of Judd Nelson finding an avenue in which to kind of prove his mettle and because like the characters have just been going at him mm-hmm. for how much of a buzzkill he's kind of well, being. I've got, I've got a few and Kevin Costner quotes. yeah um go on yeah he goes into the goes into this whole thing of saying like um, we are only ever really friends with you because we felt sorry for you. But there's there's something before that. There's, there's so much more loaded, and he's kind of he walks a line between being yeah. on the nose and also quite um, quite a, a quite a strong character summation. Kevin Costner, when he's having a go at uh, Jude Nelson's character, says, "You're anxious to run off and get yourself martyred so that somebody will love you." It's pathetic, which is um, it's pretty mm-hmm. strong stuff. <laughs> Yeah, and like even like kind of building on that, the bit that like kind of really kind of removes that element of sympathy for me is the fact that when he goes to do it, he makes the condition of like why he's going to do the skydive. He turns to Ken and goes, "If I do this, you're drafting," and I was I was sat there just going, "That is a horrible, yeah, yeah. horrible ultimatum to give because, to your yeah. friend." For- <laughs> granted you are being forced to go and do a skydive with a, a very questionable uh skydiving instructor yeah. 
more on him on the bit because I love that guy. But, uh... no, I, I think you're, you're, you're right. The, the context of the presentation. I think in the short film, are we led to believe that Phil in the short film uh, he he bottled it during an altercation previously and was having his sort of manhood. Yeah, with a with like a big yeah, tough guy yeah. on campus. He was having his manhood challenge, and everyone was having a go at him on campus. Yeah, yeah, and so he. Even then, it's still quite a shallow. It's still quite a shallow reasoning at the end of the day. But it's pretty it's a shallow. Bit more... I think it works as kind of a caricature of, of hyper masculinity and peer pressure and the need to kind of puff your chest out for your mates. But I mean, I think that's I think that's much stronger than the context of the film, which is this sort of um, this weenie narc who has some. <laughs> He's a weenie. <laughs> oh god, and he is. <laughs> <laughs> also, this film uses the word weenie yeah, so I mean, much. This is not us editorialising. I mean, it is slightly us editorialising, but the film does refer to him as a weenie. Kenneth calls him a weenie. I just, I just love hearing, I just, just love hearing the word weenie. <laughs> I think mean, it's so funny. It's like so of the time. But I think Jim, Jim, I, I find, had you know, hand, uh, cards on the table. I find Jim Nelson's performance in this film very irritating. I know the character's irritating. But I think the way Jud Nelson goes about dramatizing this side of the argument and this kind of faction of the American youth, I think, is very irritating. So um, he's very he's very shrill. shrill. A, lot he's of, very a shrill. lot of kind of red <laughs> A lot of um, you know, in, in some shots, it even looks like he's looking at the ground to make sure it hits his mark. There's, there's a lot of a studied shrillness to it. Uh, but but yeah, uh, you know, to, to yeah, yeah it, it, I agree. It's one of the performances that yeah. I also struggled with a bit in this film. And and like and why I feel like it's quite, again, quite interesting to see the fact that he mm. then would go and release The Breakfast Club six months later and he is clearly so much more comfortable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> in that role. Because, <laughs> like, I... His performance in Breakfast Club is one of my favourite, like, young actor performances of the 80s. It's like... I mean, he's so good in The Breakfast Club, which is why it's, like, quite... It's, it's, it was disappointing in the scene, but I, I think it's more of a case of miscasting than it is. He's clearly not that at ease no, with no. that character. And uh, so the, the, the framing of this whole set piece, which, like you say, is literally shot for shot, beat for beat, uh, the same as the short film. The framing of it, I think, is less effective. Mm. It kind of reduces the act itself. It, it sort of it makes it a more spiteful act as opposed to a kind of um, wry um, comment on peer pressure. And I think beyond that also, on a purely sort of filmmaking um, meat and potatoes level... It's not quite as sharp no, as the short not, film, is no. it? It's not quite as sharp. I think the, <laughs> the, the difference is in the short film, you've got this, this young filmmaker who's wanting to try these things out. And everything you see in the short film is, is orga- it's an organic result of experimentation and um, intention. Whereas in this film, because the film has kind of been reverse engineered to house this, to, to house an essentially uh, essential remake of this short film, every single shot is identical in that sequence and that kind of does something to the performances in that film it almost changes register for a for sort of like 15 20 minutes while the actors painstakingly replicate their predecessors um, movements 
to allow for these shots to be replicated. Yeah, and it does it does something like the the, the beats just don't quite work because you can tell it, it's also reverse engineered. It doesn't give any space for the actors to be able to feel organic in those scenarios. You know, it, it, it's um. It kind of strangles the life out of it a little bit. In 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 being so um, uh, dogmatically shot for shot, it is weird. I think it's a, it's a peculiar choice because it's not a sacred text. Maybe he felt like he perfected it the first time around. I mean, it's a very good short film. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, I but... I I also think there's a kind of there's almost an arrogance in that, no, isn't there? Because we <laughs> yeah, actually yeah. do to literally just be like, I nailed it the first time, let's just do what I did yeah. the first time. <laughs> I mean, he did do a good job, but, but um, now you've got a bigger budget, you've got more, you've got, you know, professional actors on board, give them a little bit of space to, to, to do something with it as opposed I do, to force I them do into this love, box. It's strange. Yeah. I do love that he brings back the same actor who played the uh, own, the operator of the skydive school and the pilot um who is um marvin j mcintyre uh, playing Tru- truman sparks great name and he, he get he also gets an expanded role in the final act as they're yeah. putting together this wedding for <laughs> ken and debbie uh, uh yeah he, he was one of my favorite things about the short and like he still still has that kind of sense of like a very um authentic stoner vibe coming coming through as this um skydive teacher who's like clearly not the most professional but like even if everything looks like it's all about to go terribly wrong he still knows what he's doing (laughs) it's got a kind of wyatt russell vibe to him yeah yeah i agree with that i agree with that um so yeah so i i do i i do agree i think that Truman Sparks, <laughs> fantastic character name. Uh, he, he's a fun, um, he's a fun element of this. And the actor, well, I guess we'll discuss the actor in passing in a few episodes' time in Back to the Future Part Three because he plays the Undertaker, right? Um, but there was something I was, because I mean, on, on the Zemeckis note, I recently did a whole Zemeckis filmography rewatch, and um, I had to, but I didn't have to. I, I you know self-imposed the watching the rewatching of the film the wall i i willingly <laughs> rewatch of the wall which is a film that i didn't care much for at the cinema uh cared a bit more like for walk. yeah i mean it, it, <laughs> it's fine the actual walk itself is fine the twee kind of pseudo french fast business i find but is that that's by the by what i was going to say was there is a stoner character in the walk when um Joseph Gordon-Levitt and his French crew come to America to plan the the crossing of the Twin Towers. They enlist uh, these two stoner guys, one of whom is played by Ben Schwartz, the other of whom is played by some guy who I, I can't think of the name of, and I won't look it up because I'm just going to slag him off. Um, he, the, 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 the way this guy plays a stoner, they're, they're, they're talking about their plan, and this dude says, I'm only interested in doing this if I can get really high uh, uh, get it get it and that's such like that's like it's such a oh christ i forgot yeah, that man. line it's such pg it's a kind of thing that you, you go see it as a family and your dad chuckles and you say dad what's, what, what's that mean and he goes oh i'll oh, tell oh. you when you're 21 son <laughs> it's like a real pg kind of drugs joke you just don't bother <laughs> just don't bother at that stage and this guy um uh, truman sparks was his name did you say 
Yeah. He, I think he's he's yeah. he's the vessel for a few similarly minded jokes. There's a part where <laughs> they're in the they're in the plane. So I, I don't think we've actually said to, to the audience the the premise of the skydiving sequence, have we? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming hopefully people will have watched it before. Listening, we we've but... said it that it was we we've said it as much as uh, Judd Nelson wanting to yeah prove to the guy that he's not completely spineless. That's it. But um, what what more context? Well, are you it's it's a about? very it's a kind of ramshackle operation this parachuting school, and and, and when when Judd Nelson yeah. is in the sky about to jump from the plane and, and launch his parachute, the co-owner or the, the mistress of the owner of the parachuting yes. school runs out to the boys on the ground and says, "Which one of you jokers has taken my laundry?" Which for some reason was packed in a backpack that was identical to one of the parachuting packs. So the idea is that Jud Nelson is up there yeah. trying to prove he's not a weenie with uh, a backpack full of laundry on his back. I mean, l- luckily he's got a front pouch with a backup parachute that prevents him from dying a grisly, painful, splattery death. Um, but it does make for some quite um, quite uh, fun uh, cartoon antics as the boys on the ground try to write a message for those in the sky uh, warning them that the backpack he's got on his back does not contain a parachute, but in fact contains uh, <laughs> uh, dirty laundry, the whites, as Walter so like might say. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so the, the guys on the ground try to use their bodies and try to use uh, other bits of, of fabric that they find hung up on a washing line to write a message on the ground saying, uh, uh, what is it, that, what's something like no-go, something like I that? I think they... They originally try to go with don't, then realise they don't have enough to make the apostrophe work, and then they go with no I mean, go, which it's then... A, it's, it's convoluted, the, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and then as the as the wife um, of, or the girlfriend of Truman Sparks is then like, because they've used her the rest of her washing to try and make this sign, as she's trying to kick it apart, because she's like, how dare you use my washing for, for this? She um, It then makes no go look like yeah. go on. Yeah. from the other angle. <laughs> yeah, and the, 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 the reason that I brought up the guy from the walk is because the Truman Sparks, the stoner parachute guy, operates a very similar kind of dad-friendly stoner humour in that he looks down and sees the sign on the ground and he's like, right on, man. And then he looks again for some reason, um, then then looks at his joint and then throws that to the side. You, you know, like kind of a, a, a drunk in an old uh, 50s movie yeah. Whoa! Whoa. 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 <laughs> and that kind of that that <laughs> I've had too much of this today. <laughs> I don't even know what it is because it hasn't materially changed since he previously looked. But maybe because he can see the sign moving and thinks, "Ah, oh, I've smoked too much of this stuff, man." But that that whole kind of like yeah, I think that's look, looking at my dube and oh, I need to live. yeah, <laughs> really bloody like. Yeah, uh, lame. <laughs> I found it super Take lame. a hit of this, man. It'll make the fall so much better. <laughs> I know. Come on, man. Yeah, it just reminded me of, um, of the guy from the walk, and that was. It's the role yeah. I was born to play, baby. <laughs> that was a very long walk for a short drink of water, I do realize. But I, I had to mention that because uh, it, 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 it tickled me. Yeah. <laughs> I quite enjoyed it as that kind of stereotypical stoner performance, yeah. I must say. It's like you, you've got, you've got. <laughs> I'm simply pleased. <laughs> I guess you've you've got kind of you've got the stoners kind of like um like Brad Pitt in uh, True Romance and and that that kind of 
like implicit stoner. Yeah. Then you've got the more family friendly. I'm a stoner type of stoner, which is the guy in the walk and this guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, that, I mean that, that that was what I wanted to say. My favorite thing about the sequence that I don't think was in the short film, but I could be wrong, is the fact that Kevin Costner's character just shouts at one point, "One small step for a Groover." One giant leap for weenie time. <laughs> oh my goodness, me. I think it's probably my favourite line of the whole thing. <laughs> One small step for a groover. Oh my goodness. No, I, I don't I didn't didn't plot that. It wasn't in the Wikipedia plot synopsis, so I, I missed that. Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> and then fr- kinda like from that point on the film goes like ends up kind of having, again, this struggle with a kind of sincere sentimentality that is cut, plays either side of this kind of essential yeah. remake. Which it falls bang film. in the centre of the film, too. Uh, it's a literal centrepiece of the movie, isn't it? Yeah. It, it, like you say, it's 20 minutes of a 89-minute runtime <laughs> yeah. as well. Yeah. So it's like... <laughs> um, but I like... Because the whole film is more built around this idea that they're out trying to relive the greatest hits of the Groovers and it leads to two scenes afterwards which probably are like where the both the themes of the film of the film come come more to directly to the fore because they've been going one going out to head out to this notorious roadhouse bar and when they get there all they see are charred remains of what the roadhouse used to be and whilst there, they have this com- a more open conversation about the kind of anxieties that they have about uh, moving on, and how the and set against this backdrop of um, a kind of an image of what they were expecting of uh, their youth and sense of abandon, and like a destination point of this last last ride that ends up being wholly empty. Which I think is quite an interesting image that gets slightly over-explained by the over-sentimental monologues that are given. But I like, like, like throughout this whole mm. film, I think all the backdrops are really, yeah. really used really well. Particularly like the kind of deep open uh, deserts to uh, weird kind of like because there's this running bit of Costner having uh, flashbacks to when he was with Debbie, um, and they're shot beautifully uh, on be it a beach or in a field or like there's this very like uh, abstract moment where it's a very purple lit um desert and beach that really struck me in terms of like exhibiting a bit more of Reynolds as uh at least a, a, a visually more uh ambitious director than from from just simply recreating the short that he'd already made but uh and there's other moments like that too, like similar to then heading to the roadhouse and it's burnt out where these moments of kind of retrospective discussion happen between them that are like just don't quite appreciate how much the images themselves speak to the themes that they're trying to uh, develop and uh, speak to. Like um, the one I think of is a little earlier in the film. There's a moment where they've they've gone into town one night and they're uh, gone out drinking with a couple of local girls and they decide to go to 
a graveyard to let off some fireworks. And there's a point where uh, Gardner and uh, Ken um, are running in the in the graveyard and they fall into a dugout grave while some fireworks go off and it brings up this like very evocative imagery of um kind of like vietnam war movies and like just generally a sense of uh being being in a dugout and um uh and it, and it's a it's a real abrupt moment in the film that kind of like drags the reality back into uh into the proceedings that works really well until like the two of them then talk a little too on the nose about the fact that they're like <laughs> i'm scared about going yeah, to vietnam yeah. this is like that is pretty much the is <laughs> pretty much the conversation that they end up having and it's just what like like i said that moment and the kind of roadhouse moment are two moments where i think like yeah, on the film yeah. is working at a much better visual level than the script i think yeah there is one kind of notion that's sort of felt for in the dialogue that, that I felt was very effective. It certainly got me uh, the, the most of anything in this film. It's when I, I think I think it's just after the parachuting scene when everyone's kind of <laughs> by by <laughs> by uh, doing the the, the skydive and, and and not dying. Um, Jude Nelson I think proves to the boys that he's not a weenie and is is not a narc and is on the level. And whatnot, and they all they all get along and stuff. But there's they're, they're um I, I don't have the exact quote, but they're reminiscing about being sixteen, you know, sixteen, seventeen, looking at the couple of years ahead of them and thinking they look good, like thinking that okay, in the next few years I'm gonna unlock, you know, true true uh, young adulthood, adolescence, have a great time, and how they don't feel that feeling anymore, and that sentiment is something that. Um, I mean, I, I, I think that's a very potent idea. And certainly, I've been reckoning with this idea of, of being kind of a, a promising young person. You know, when you're kind of fresh out of university, you're, you're, you know, you're full of promise and, 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 and you know, you told the world is your oyster and people kind of cut you a bit of slack because you, you're kind of, you're on the cusp of, of fulfilling your promise. You know, you, you've got all this potential ahead of you. Then whereas maybe a bit later in your twenties, <laughs> this is lockdown, man. <laughs> later in your twenties, you're kind of you 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 now are the adult, and you no longer by <laughs> based on your potential and your promise. You now have to fulfil that promise, and that's something that's a, a, a sentiment yeah. that I'm yeah. that this I, I guess forms the basis of what we term these quarter life crises. I'm doing air quotes now, you know. What we would call a quarter life crisis, I think, is that notion that we are no longer young people with potential. We are now adults that need to do the shit that we've been saying we'll be doing for our whole lives. And I think in that moment, the film really taps into that idea in a really, really effective way. Yeah. And it, it, it's very good at, like, there are, like, a lot of moments where it, like, hits that groove and, like, does really gel into that like mm, like it, yeah, it's a yeah. really resonant theme particularly for as both i imagine if i saw this in my early 20s i would also i would yeah. feel i would probably feel yeah. a very different way towards it to now watching it in my like approaching my late 20s um but like to the point where the second part of their journey is complete um and they find Dom, which spoilers, but you know we've spoiled this enough already. <laughs> but um, yeah, the the second part of their big journey is to find Dom, which is 
rem- like remains kind of elusive yeah. to us as an audience as to what Dom actually is. You're, you're like part of you is thinking, is it a dead body of an old friend that they had and they buried and they're gonna dig him up? What is? <laughs> but then when they get there and there's this kind of D- the name Dom's just sketched into a rock face uh, overlooking a bluff in R- Rio Grande. Um, they dig it up and it's a vintage bottle yeah. of Dom Perignon that they've clearly all made a pact to go back and retrieve and drink at the, at the end of their college days and they've buried it four years prior or what have you and uh, there's the quote that like I think if you are familiar with Fandango this is the kind of quote that has um, entered the zeitgeist most and has uh, kind of stuck with it as being the kind of like distillation of um what it is that this film's kind of literally toasting to and that is here's to us by god to us and that and the privilege of the youth here's to us and what we were and what will be and that is the like the, the kind of real yeah dramatic cusp of the film that i think um allows it to speak quite like like in that moment yeah. i think it speaks really quite sweetly to the yeah. truth that it's trying to distill um and and then it really undercuts the whole moment for me by the fact that they've all had literally one swig of this bottle of dom perignon that they've tra- traversed across the whole of texas to the mexican border to drink they've all had a sip kevin costner goes to the edge of the bluff and makes it's a nice big speech, speech. Yeah. it's nice and lovely <laughs> takes one lot takes another swig and there must be a good half of the bottle left and then he just absolutely wangs it into off the cliff edge into into the into the distance I mean, especially going like you you hear you and you see it spray out and bear in mind this yeah. this is following Andy texting me, getting Andy's emotional headspace. Andy texted me at the airfield, the parachute, the parachute school. The, that's not a thing. The parachuting school. They run out. They finish their crate of beer. Andy texts me saying, "Oh no, they've run out of beer. Sad." Then they find Dom. They un- they excavate Dom. Turns out that it's a bottle of Dom Perignon, not a person called Dom. Oh good, they found booze again. Hooray! And then they have, like Andy said, that nary a sip each. And then Kevin Costner, because he wants to be, um, you know, be the centre of attention, he decides to throw the whole thing into the canyon. And so you're Andy at this point. You've been jerked around all over the place emotionally. I, I can't even begin to imagine how you must have felt at this point, Andy. This must have been... <laughs> it's not on. It's so annoying. <laughs> I know. I, I just. Re- I also really hope it was a prop bottle of Dom Perignon yeah. that wasn't like, like, say yeah. they'd saved that last day of shooting, <laughs> save that moment to the last day of shooting. They're like, all right, Kev, we're gonna we're gonna dig up this bottle. You're all gonna take a swig. And you're gonna go to yeah. the edge of the bluff and say this rousing speech, like this rousing speech to off the off the edge. That is really like you know the emotional crux of this film, and then you know take another swig 
And then, and then that's a wrap. And then we can enjoy the rest of that vintage bottle that we managed to get hold of for this film. <laughs> and we can, we can, we can all, have, we can all have a big party. And then Kevin Costner just absolutely pelts it off. I mean, <laughs> don't take that as gospel. I have no idea if that's the truth. But, but <laughs> it's, it's like um, in uh, the Hateful Eight when uh, Kurt Russell destroys the antique yeah. guitar in the take. It, that is, that is how it plays out in my head. <laughs> Just after that moment, you just hear Kevin Reynolds shout, "Cut!" It's like Kevin, no! <laughs> Kevin, no! Went in slow motion at that point. But you're right. It's it's it, it, the, the sentiments that are tapped into, and that whole sequence, that whole when they're sitting drinking the wine, and Kevin Costner is pontificating over the the bluff edge. Um, that reminds me of you know those those wasted nights when you stay out all night with your mates and you're you're sort of bedraggled and you're squiffy sitting on a field or sitting by the edge. We've of the had many, my whatever. friend. We've had as, many. <laughs> as the sun's coming up, and you know, and 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 those moments. <laughs> we're not old men, you know. We, we are just we're just in our late twenties, but <laughs> but those days, those you know, I, I think the, the more time between you and those days, the more precious they feel. And um, I think this film does at its best. This film taps into into the the memory of those days effectively. Um, I agree. I just like yeah, as much as um, as we're lamenting our kind of passing of youth, we are still only twenty seven and twenty eight. So we yeah, understand. Yeah, we're twenty seven and twenty eight in the midst of lockdown three. That's going to end God knows when. Our, you know, our youth is is slipping through our hands like a rope that's got too much slack. <laughs> um, but I think that that is. If, if the film, I mean, it would be a much, much shorter film if it had ended there, but I think it would be, I, I, that's kind of it the pads, emotional crescendo. Yeah, and, and then it pads out with the wedding. Because that, um... that, that's kind of the end of Act 2, right? After that, that's when he just yeah, really. goes back and yeah. he's going to get married. And there's a whole extra act involving the the, pilot, the um, oh my good, Tr- Truman Sparks, is it? Truman Sparks? Truman Sparks is the pilot, yeah. The... yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bring, bringing him back. He has to go and collect Debbie because that's more dramatic than them going to Debbie or some some shit like that. And there's another lame joke when the the stoner pilot has the directions written out on a band-aid box and he's reading the instructions as he's flying and he goes, take a left into band-aid. Where the hell is that? <laughs> You're better than that. Jesus Christ. Well, and also, b- born to oh, Sorry, I think that's playing. funny. But weenie! I do who's like the real weenie in this who's movie. The re- who's the real weenie? Uh, <laughs> I do like that whole segment though, because again, when we were watching this together, I just because <laughs> there's a lot of more aerial stunts in these yeah, events yeah. of flying under bridges, and I was like, this guy's been playing Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, yes. <laughs> but you're I mean, right. The whole. The- final act is yeah. then about all the characters kind of coming together to because Ken has this after uh, Gardner's Costner's uh, rousing speech of of wanging the Don Perignon into the <laughs> off the edge of a cliff and lamenting their, their passing of youth uh, this is when Ken has the sudden realisation that he's made a terrible mistake, mistake and has to has to repair the relationship that he's thrown away so carelessly and so they all they all get together and put together a scheme to 
uh, help it put well put up his wedding basically in this small town that must be close to Rio, Rio Grande, um, and <laughs> they they work it as a hustle like where they kind of play it out like they can't get hold of anything, uh, but then like all the town folk just keep coming up and going, oh I can give you that, or I can I can do this roast for you, or I can put these lights up for you, um, and I know it's supposed to be a whole play on like how they're like. Uh, hustling the small town, but I more read it like these people are really nice, yeah, yeah, <laughs> lovely, helpful people, and it, to, to the point where when everything gets set up and the fairy lights are on the bandstand, I thought, well, are, are, are we on the the sort of Tex-Mex border or are we in Stars Hollow at the minute? It does look like uh, it does very much have a Gilmore Girls vibe. Really, You're not wrong. You know, <laughs> really, even the kind of that 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 that, that sentiment of um, of this being the transit, the end of a transitory phase, and yeah, you know, whole thing about how I, I haven't never seen the show in its entirety. My my girlfriend watches it on repeat, pretty much continuously. So I, I drop in here and there. Um, but you know, R- Rory's kind of on the cusp of going off to like an Ivy League school and leaving this whole small town behind her. And yeah, you know, that that sentiment is. I think there's an overlap there in sentiment. And there, for a moment, I set it between this movie and Gilmore Girls. <laughs> and of course uh, there is a dance to a fandango um albeit done in a strangely in a in a fashion that i'm not entirely sure actually takes place yes where, yes, 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 yes um gardner is told by ken like why don't you have it that's customary for the best man to have a dance with the bride and they both approach it kind of awkwardly yeah. and then kevin costner turns to the band and goes hey can you play a fandango? And the rest of the crowd drops away and it's just them two. But And then it cuts back into it again and there's a sense more that there has been just an awkward beat between them and he hasn't actually danced with her, which I thought was quite interesting. <laughs> it it, it c- continues to play to this ongoing fantasy of his of like... Um, it's, it's interesting to have this entirely one point perspective of what their relationship was yeah. like and only only through these very dreamlike images um yeah that i'm i'm not entirely convinced gardner was a good boy I, I, no, I <laughs> um, but I, I suppose again i suppose that scene plays better when you watch it organically as a film intended and and didn't have the reviews spoiled <laughs> by the bloody wikipedia synopsis um and yeah, and then and then so we have all that, and then there's a bit that I thought was quite nicely bittersweet when they they um, Weenie gives them his car, yeah. which has been battered to pieces. Weenie give <laughs> Judd Nelson gives him the car, but we, 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 <laughs> former the artist Weenie gives him the car, and they drive off, and then he turns around and oh, and also yeah, so the, the unconscious guy, the unconscious fella. Um, uh, uh, Lester Griffin wakes up, wakes up and he says something like, "I'm going to hitchhike to who knows where." Dorman, who is the big the big boy who never speaks, he is the the priest who marries them. Yeah, so like the whole thing just summarizes these boys are at the end of this road and they're they're about to embrace the next chapter in their lives. So whether that's waking up and talking, or putting down your book and talking, or stopping being a bit of a weenie for a second and, and then giving some mates your car to drive off and, and be married in. But Judd Nelson turns around after seeing off Kenneth and Debbie and says, um, um, hey, hey, um, 
where's Gardner? Gard Gardner didn't say goodbye. And then Dorman says, uh, neither will I. And he turns and walks off. And admittedly, you know, Weenie then chases Dorman and, and shakes his hand and they have their moment. But but that, 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 that specific, like, five-second exchange, Gardner didn't say goodbye, neither will I. I love that kind of, I love that, that lack of ceremony. Like, this is the end of an era. And, um, you know, there's no pomp, there's no ceremony. This is just, this is just the passing of time. This is just, you know, life going by. And um, this is how we are. Meanwhile, uh, while this is going on, Gardner has run off to sit on the hillside uh, that looks over this area where the wedding's taking place. And he kind of watches as all the lights turn off and as the party disperses. And he raises a glass, doesn't he, to sort of toast a, a bygone era. He does. Yeah. One more toast for the Costner. <laughs> he doesn't throw that drink away. <laughs> <laughs> and whereas I originally read that as him kind of crystallising his, his shirking of his adult responsibilities, I do much prefer your reading of that being him kind of just commemorating the definitive... All right. I've had my yeah, moment exactly. now. <laughs> I, 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 I'm going to give the film a bit more credit than I initially had, and I think that that here's to the privilege, here's of, to the the youth. privilege of the youth. There you go. <sighs> <laughs> I think that's quite a nice little point to round off this discussion because, like, it even just having this discussion has now made me think I like the film a lot more than yeah. I did when I watched it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, it's the beauty of the podcast. Everything that's ever made is made with intention and with hard work from people. So it, ours is not to, to to callously, childishly hate on something. It's to try and I like to think that even if we dislike a film, we'll try and figure out what they were trying to do, as opposed to just you know shitting on it out of hand. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I think talking about yeah. this film has made me think that there's a bit more to it than I had initially figured in my first watch especially given that I'd watched it in a lopsided way having a reveal spoiled for me in a way that I didn't <laughs> appreciate um, so yeah I, th I think it, it is just a strong theme, it's a strong notion isn't it and, uh, it's something that yeah, that, that yeah certainly I agree I still feel to this day I, I... it's a resonant theme told in quite like a un uneven bumpy but kind of weird and engaging manner I think for the most yeah. part and like I say, the groovers find their groove every now and again where it does pack a punch. So uh, the official rambling endorsement, well, I say this, this is, this is just my take, but I'm going to say it's the official rambling endorsement is uh, check out Proof, the 24-minute short film. It's on YouTube in three parts. If, mm -hmm. if you like what that's got going on, uh, then, then check out Fandango. It's not streaming anywhere free. We re I rented it uh, online for, you know, for, 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 but three punts. It's not much for a good time. But three points. Um, you know, it's worth yeah. checking. And in terms of like the wider, like kind of, as we've kind of gone into this, we've started to already see that there's so many co-current play like players that come back and like link up with it, it link up with all the different films in some way. And like, I didn't think we'd get to an Alan Silvestri score till Back to the Future, but this is the first time we get also get an Alan Silvestri score. Which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah. I wasn't fully expecting it. It's not his best work. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's this weird kind of divide between a kind of like evoking this dusty 
Texan vibe, but also playing this like really like overly yeah, excited yeah. adventure score at certain points that I don't think f- fully fully gels. But the film also does have some really cool needle drops. There's a lot. There's a really cool opening sequence um, set to Elton John's Saturday Night is a Night for Fighting, and um, I always love hearing Spooky in a movie, no matter it's, who yeah, it is. Not be it Dusty, Dusty Springfield. Who is it? Sings it's not the Dusty Springfield one. It is if i remember correctly it is the classics for the oh. and also speak, like, speaking of gilmore girls there's a carol king song in this movie isn't there what is the whole debbie mm-hmm. the first debbie fantasy sequence slash memory sequence or whatever it is when he's remembering like playing with her in a field or whatever it is there's a carol yeah. king song playing oh yeah really, like, you're yeah, right which um <laughs> Which is another notch in the Carol King Gilmore, the uh, Fandango Gilmore Girls connection. <laughs> and but before we like super wrap it up, like um, I had a shout out to Thomas Del Roof, who was the cinematographer on this, because it is one of one of the stronger aspects of it is its visual identity. He he's I, I didn't know he had shot this until credits rolled, and he he is someone who like kind of epitomizes. A real eighties aesthetic to me, aesthetic to me, because he also shot the likes of um, the Breakfast Club and Stand by Me. So he has this real coming of age. He he gets that kind of like fuzzy round the edges sort of uh, nostalgia goggles look. Um, but he and he would then later go on to have to really pioneer the walk and talk camera technique for Aaron Sorkin and Tara Schumann. Yeah. And, the lights of yeah, the west yeah. the west wing and sunset 60 so studio he is that 60 guy. please he is the walk and talk guy <laughs> <laughs> studio 60 yeah <laughs> um uh that's cool wow what, what a what a nicely varied career yeah <laughs> and it all funny, started was... with fandango it, was... <laughs> it is funny that, that, that the scene when kevin costner wastes a bottle of don perignon that reminded me that what the sentiment of that scene reminded me of the the, the, the parting line of Stand By Me, you know, when it's Richard mm. Dreyfus's voiceover and his concluding line of the novel that he's writing is, um, you never have friends like the friends you have when you're 12 years old. And then he stops writing and kind of says, damn, ain't that the truth? And um, I, I think Jesus, that, does anyone? Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, yeah, that whole thing. I think Stand By Me is a, infinitely better film than this but i think the sentiment is is very much running through both the sort of the passing of youth and our relationship in our you know later stages of life with that very youth and uh... yeah i agree it's like it's a film that like was like we say the kind of the ride can be a bit bumpy the the, the real core of its heart is something that I find like kind of irresistible at the end of the day. At the end of the day! <laughs> Alright! <laughs> and I did, like, it is a... I, I, I completely understand why this film has a cult following. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I completely yeah. understand. It's a film that has very stylized lines of dialogue. It has these kind of slightly off-the-wall moments. It has a, a good soundtrack like we say yeah and it is a and i always feel like these kind of like uh point of origin movies for a lot of figures who would go on to have bigger careers 
always tend to end up having this kind of cult yeah. following. Yeah, 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 for sure. Most definitely. Um, I always, I'll forever find it weird that Kevin Reynolds went from making something <laughs> like this to then specialising in the likes of Robin Hood, Tristan and Isolde, and Risen. <laughs> but well, <laughs> that's, that's a conversation for another podcast. That's <laughs> Yeah, where we run through the run through Barry Sonnenfeld's and (laughs) Kevin Reynolds' extended filmography. (laughs) The Runaway Vacation and Risen in the same. uh, same (laughs) So that does wrap us up for this episode of Fandango, uh, a film that I think we've ended up being able to talk more about than I thought we were actually were going to be able to. Oh, hang on! I think there was a bit to say about this that I initially uh, yeah uh, yeah and uh, for our next episode we're going to be keeping things in 1985 um, we're going to be for in 1985 while, for a little while yeah. actually because <laughs> yeah a, a lot of the next few films are still within the calendar year released in the calendar year of 1985 yeah our next our next episode will be on the beloved Richard Donner movie The Goonies um, and I'm so sorry. I'm so so sorry that, about that. That's absolutely fine. I mean, I, I don't think it's going to be the last time that Cindy Lauper's going <laughs> to <laughs> be evoked in this. I think it's a good song. I, I listen to that song quite often, actually. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> I'm looking forward to diving into that because it is, again, it's one of these, it's one of these Amblin movies that kind of, when you kind of look at the grand scheme of it or when you ever kind of like approach people and ask them about Amblin, it's one of these ones that fits the kind of bill for what people expect when you say like the name Amblin and the brand Amblin. Um, I watched it a few years ago. I want to say about two or three years, about three years ago. Um, So it's not one that's that um yeah. unfamiliar to me in terms of like going back and uh, re- uh rediscovering it um but it's going to be interesting to talk with you and our our, our guests to that we'll reveal that in the next episode um because it is one of those it is one of those amblin movies that i feel like has such an essence of nostalgia t- attached to it but isn't necessarily as strong as that nostalgia may pertain I- I I have um, I haven't seen it. I think it's been it's been a, a good it's been a good ten years. I think I haven't seen it since before I went to university and met yourself. And um, it's a film that very much we'll, we'll get into this next week. It's, it's, it benefits from having seen it in your youth, and I'm a little bit worried about how it's yeah. going to play now <laughs> in this day. And <laughs> yeah, we we'll find see, out in a couple of weeks. Mystery guest. <laughs> uh, but if you fancy watching the Goonies along with us ahead of the episode and don't have it on disc, um, it is available to those of you that have a Now TV or SkyGo subscription. Otherwise, you can buy or rent the film digitally from Amazon, Chile, Google Play, Microsoft Store, Rakuten TV, Sky Store, and YouTube. <laughs> And if you have any thoughts on the Goonies that you want to share with us uh, for uh, further discussion on our podcast next time, then please do tweet us at ramblinamblin or email us at ramblinaboutamblin at gmail.com. 
Uh, if you've got any uh, inclination to review us, please do on your podcast provider of choice. Also, give us a like and a subscribe while you're at it. Before we say our goodbyes, we also wanted to bring something to your attention. Robert J. Hunter and Greg Sheffield, our musician pals behind our awesome theme tune, have put together a crowdfunder page to help them and the rest of the Robert J. Hunter band put the finishing touches to their latest album. The pandemic, has, like for all of us, has affected us in a myriad of different ways, but it has particularly, I feel, affected the life of people who make a living off live performing and being able to get together and record music, and such has been the case for Rob and Greg and the rest of the Robert J. Hunter band. So um, this has very much halted the development of their latest album, and they just need that little bit of an extra push to help uh, get that album completed and get it out to all you good folk. Uh, and it's not just donations that they're asking for. As from as little as £10, you will also be pre-ordering a digital copy of the album that you will receive before the official release date. And there's a, a number of different options on the crowdfunder page where you can uh, either select a just receive the digital album or you can receive the digital album with signed lyric sheets uh you can receive a bundle that includes their previous albums as well and you can easily even get a pressing of the new album that's due for release on some sexy sexy vinyl which uh <laughs> I, I know both me and josh do love a bit of vinyl and i'm sure there's plenty of you out there that also do um you can find the crowdfunder page both in the episode description, and I'll, I'll say it out to you now, it's crowdfunder.co.uk forward slash RJH, the unfinished album. That's forward slash RJH, the unfinished album. And there you can kind of take a look at all your donation options and be able to figure out which one that you kind of feel the most comfortable with and have the whatever the kind of means that you have available to you now to be able to help these guys in any way that you can um i it's the least we can do um to kind of mention this for rob and greg because they 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 really came through for us in terms of making the theme tune yeah they they truly delivered something that was like far and beyond what we were expecting (laughs) they are two of the best boys exactly and and they're the band itself is such a great band made up of uh, so many like talented collaborators. Uh, very worthy of support, your support and whatever you can give during these times to help get that new album across the finishing line. Uh, you can find their music, like it, wherever you're listening to this now, you can probably just throw in Robert J. Hunter Band into your search bar and be able to find their music. They're a really kind of like potent heady mix of funky blues and soulful ballads that like can both like get your foot tapping and like really 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 stir your insides in a very pleasant way (laughs) so uh, like yeah so definitely check them out before uh and uh, and like get behind them while you can because like this has been particularly tough but i do i do really feel for anybody in kind of like the arts industry at this time who haven't been able to get out there and do what they do best in the way that they they're they're used to and kind of rely upon as well so i do i do feel like it's a for anybody in the situation it's a worthy cause to get behind i very much look forward to being 
being at a point where we can go out and see them again. <laughs> so, and this is the closest thing I feel I can get to feeling like I'm supporting them in, <laughs> in some degree. <laughs> we can't be sipping pints in the George Tavern watching them play, but we can encourage our good listeners to support them during exactly. this time. And uh, to change things up a bit before um, for playing us out, we're not going to go with the uh, lovely theme up top that Rob and Greg made for us. We're, we're gonna... <laughs> we, we've been given permission by the Robert J. Hunter Band to play one of their tracks for you as we play out. Um, so so before we go into that, I just want to say thank you to Josh again for joining us, joining, <laughs> joining me for... <laughs> A nice ramble about a yeah. Kevin Reynolds movie that neither it's of us been, have uh, seen. It's been a good, fun, silly ramble. Uh, lovely to see you as always, mate. Indeed. And uh, we hope you tune in for next next time where we will be discussing the Goonies. And we hope you will take care until then. <laughs> and until then, I'm now going to hand over to the Robert J. Hunter Band with Suitcase Blues. See you next time. <laughs>